0: Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we talk to experts from the media industry about how journalists can do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. This week, we're going to take a look at the state of play in the UK independent local news sector. The smallest news publishers really struggle to keep their businesses afloat in the digital economy, despite producing some of the most impactful journalism. Here to discuss this with me is Jonathan Hayward, Executive Director of the Public Interest News Foundation, also known as PIMF. It's a UK charity which provides research and development programmes for independent news providers. Jonathan is also a former journalist and in 2015 he founded Impress, a UK independent press regulator which he led until 2020 it's hard to keep on top of everything in local news. Since 2019 when Dame Frances Carecross produced an independent review into the sustainable future for journalism, there have been so many ideas floating around, many different initiatives and proposals, and yet the challenges facing local news organisations have not disappeared digital advertising does not reward high-impact journalism on a local level. In the US, as we've explored on some of the previous episodes, many local outlets have weaned themselves off that model and onto reader revenue and philanthropic funding that have made a world of difference. Jonathan talks to me about how the UK local news sector could get there. All of that's coming up after this exciting announcement. Looking to introduce some new ideas in your local newsroom? Apply for Journalism.co.uk's virtual mentorship scheme that will help you learn from an experienced industry pro. It's free, and you can spend six hours over six months to experiment with tools and strategies that will help you solve problems in your newsroom. The deadline to apply is the 14th of February, open to all UK-based local and regional news organisations. Visit Journalism.co.uk for more details. Jonathan, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for jumping on.
1: Thanks, Jacob. Really nice to be with you.
0: Lovely to see you. Um, would you mind telling our audiences a little-known fact about you?
1: Yeah, um it's a it's a good question, that isn't it? I suppose one thing that I I've been doing for many years now is alongside the day job, I've always done quite a lot of writing some of that is you know opinion pieces for publication and I and I published a non-fiction book a couple of years ago about press freedom uh but I've also been working on a series of novels which have not been published which I start to think perhaps will never be published but it's a labor of love um
0: what what kind of what kind of genre will be talking about here
1: seven volume alternate reality dystopian Mm, you know, it should be on Netflix, should be the world's biggest uh, cultural product, but not yet.
0: Well, listen, let's we're here to talk today about, uh, I guess, the state of play in, in local news and more to the point, uh, the, the independent local news arena, especially. I know that PIMF has done great research into this um, coming back to last year with the uh, index study that you put out. Um, what were some of the highlights from that study?
1: Yeah, so the index was an attempt for us to really map the terrain. The index itself was modelled on something that's been running in the states for about five years now by uh, the Institute for Nonprofit News, or INN. So they run this this survey, annual survey. It's become a real landmark in the states, telling you all the data about about their sector. We thought that gave a really good template, and also meant that we could do some benchmarking against the situation in the states. So, yeah, we launched that uh, about this time last year, surveyed in the end 56 publishers. Now, we think that's a pretty good sample of the sector, but we think the sector is a lot bigger. So Press Gazette have estimated there may be up to 400, what you could call independent local news providers in the UK. I think that ranges perhaps from some very small players In our case, we we set the sort of upper limit at organisations with turnover of £2 million. We felt above that, you're getting into the territory of more established businesses, and you start to get up into the the mid-sized regional groups, those that still exist. Not many of them do. Of those 56 publishers, pretty high audiences. So across the whole group, 10.1 million people regularly Uh, engaging with them on digital, selling four to five hundred thousand printed copies of papers every month. Not all of them do print, but quite a significant proportion do still have a print product, but tiny revenues. So the typical revenue across the sector is about £40,000. So it's not nothing. These are not amateurs. They're not hobbyists. They're not doing it out of their shed for free. They are generating revenue and they are paying themselves and often a tiny team of two or three people fairly as you can tell fairly modest wages but their their businesses they're more I think akin to you know independent bookshops or coffee shops or something than they are to complete amateurs but a huge gap between the actual audiences that they're reaching and the revenues that they're generating.
0: Yeah and that revenue just for comparison you think of like reach PLC there annual revenue is 600 million, JPIs is 88 million. Like this is a real gulf in uh, revenue between the, not hyperlocal, the independent local news um, arena and what we'd consider sort of the the upper echelon of the local and regional um, news media.
1: Exactly, exactly. And you could you could do some guesstimates, you could try to sort of work out, well, what does that mean? What's the the yield per audience member for, for reach and NewsQuest as opposed to these independents? The challenge is, of course, that we don't really have industry standard audience data. So in the old days, you could get ABC data and everyone everyone used that and everyone published it. Now, so many of them have left ABC and they're a bit more cryptic about their actual audience figures. But on the face of it, you'd think those big publishers are able to generate more return for every audience member that that they get. And it seems that that seems to be, to me, that's a function of the digital economy, which just massively favours scale.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: There's a disproportionate benefit to being big.
0: Absolutely. Yeah we've spoken there about revenue but what does what exactly does that translate to in terms of profit for these uh, independent local media outlets
1: i mean it doesn't really translate into profit in any meaningful sense i mean if you look at the people that we were talking to in the survey they're split about half and half between being established on a for-profit basis or a non-profit basis but even the the, the technically for-profit publishers they're not they're not generating a profit. They're not they're not paying out dividends. They don't have sort of shareholders who are getting fat returns. Um, I mean, one of them t- said to me that in a good year, it means that he's able to pay himself above minimum wage. That's that's what a profit looks like.
0: And and, and to be clear, I mean, this isn't a result of a lack of demand, lack of audience interest. What, what, so what is what is causing this, the these hardships within the local uh, independent local news media and um, sort of industry?
1: yeah i mean i think i think they're functions of the same challenges that are faced at all levels of the industry that if you're if you're looking to generate revenue through digital advertising the 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 payout per click is is so negligible that it doesn't stack up
0: right so adver- advertising doesn't really fully reward the high impact journalism is what you're Kind of thing
1: it it doesn't look like it and that was one of the really interesting comparisons with the us where they looked at you know broadly comparable slice of the market um for a start there has been vastly more philanthropic funding for that kind of journalism in the states so these organizations are typically a lot bigger now than their uk counterparts You know, turnover in the hundreds of thousands of dollars rather than the the thousands of pounds but the other really significant difference is that they're much less dependent on advertising revenue. What they've done with their philanthropic funding is to start to build reader revenue models. So they will typically have a much larger larger share of income coming from reader revenue, which might, you know, might be a paywall subscription based model, it might be a more Guardian style membership model. It might include a, a, a bunch of local donors who are putting in regular voluntary contributions but one way or another that u.s sector has weaned itself away from advertising and seems to be really sort of you know reaping the benefits
0: right very interesting so kind of what i what i take so far from this conversation is that um Right now, the independent local news media industry doesn't really have a culture where for-profit news really thrives. It's kind of if you want to run that kind of news outlet, that's that's making profit, and to, let's be let's be honest, that that should be viable. That should be a possibility. There's no reason why not. It's it's insanely hard to do that if it's, if it's possible. Impossible.
1: But I think there are you know there are particular factors. You have to be in an area with a certain level of affluence, you know, fairly thriving business community. There are features that are going to make it work just about in some parts of the country but not in all if you're in Port Talbot in South Wales where you know all the legacy papers closed many years ago and the attempt to create an independent alternative the Port Talbot magnet itself wasn't sustainable because there is just no money in Port Talbot so it's going to be horses for courses you know few affluent places maybe it's just about viable but in the majority i think it's going to be incredibly difficult
0: right so let's kind of talk then about what support has become available to help those news outlets in those communities where you don't tend to see that affluence it might be harder um 2019 we had the Cairn Cross review and subsequently the government response from that has been shall we say mixed what's your kind of summary on how the government's response to um Cairn Cross has been
1: yeah, I mean, I think I think Ken Cross had I think it was nine recommendations in total, and the government came out and very proudly said, you know, we support eight of these recommendations. To be frank, they were the easy ones, and the one that they didn't support was actually creating a an institute. What Francis Ken Cross recommended was that should be something a bit like the Arts Council, which gets public funding but is completely independent of government and makes you know clear decisions about who it should award the funding to. And the government sort of just said no, no, we're not 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 doing that. So all the other ones, like the B- the BBC Local Democracy Reporter Scheme, that's that's the BBC, that's the BBC taking a bit of money out of its own pocket and putting it into the into the local news economy. Nesta got two million pounds of government funding. They haven't received any further funding. That pilot scheme, the Future News Fund, wasn't taken forward I think Nesta had a few challenges it was a bit unfortunate timing they launched that again into the pandemic so some of the projects they were supporting weren't really able to fly as they might have done and then the other thing the government is taking forward that Francis Cairncross recommended and others have recommended as well is the idea of a news media bargaining code taking the Australian model where you create a new mechanism for publishers to negotiate with platforms to try to get a slightly bigger share of the advertising revenue. So that that's one they are taking forward. I think the challenge there is that again, it will favor scale. If, if you're a big publisher and you're generating a hundred million clicks a month and you're currently getting, you know, 0.1 P per click, maybe you're able to use your bargaining power and move that up to 0.2 pence per click, let's say, and you double your revenue, and that's a significant amount of extra money, cash, you've got coming in. If you're a small publisher doing a niche or sub or a small area, and you're getting a few thousand clicks a month, A, it's not clear whether or not you're gonna have the same bargaining power as the big publishers, the same leverage. And even if you do, the difference in actual terms cash terms, it's still, it's still not very much money. So that's one where I think the government is, you know, they are doing the right thing, they are moving forward with that. But we've got to look at the detail of how that code actually develops to make sure it doesn't simply entrench the dominance of the big players.
0: And the thing about Australia's news bargaining code is that media businesses will need to have a minimum revenue of 150,000 Australian dollars to be eligible. That's about 80,000 pounds. As we've heard, that's precisely the type of bracket that few UK independent media outlets fit in. The Australian model would exclude many UK independent news outlets in its current form. If
1: our index has captured a fairly representative sample of what, as I said, might be up to 400 small publishers, then the typical turnover is £40,000. So that entire sector, if if we took the Australian model, lock, stock and barrel, just wouldn't even get a seat at the table. So they don't even get the chance to negotiate. They're stuck with their whatever it is, 0.000, 000 pence per click revenue uh from advertising. So so as I said, yeah, the base the basic idea that you create a more level playing field, that you um stop the platforms being able to dictate terms and abuse their monopolistic status. Yes, absolutely, let's push that forwards. But then we've got to look at the detail to make sure, as I said, it actually gives the smaller players a piece of the action. Because it's not just a sort of altruistic point about these smaller publishers who happen to be around at the moment. It's also that's just going to make for a healthy market. That's just good capitalism. If you entrench market power based on people who've already built up scale, you will create an ossified industry. And I think there's too much of that already. So we've got to make sure that this, this new system is actually going to be friendly towards new players, startups, people trying to grow from the tiny to the small to medium, then actually, you know, we start to see the potential 5, 10, 15 years time for an actual, you know, let's be really optimistic here, a a healthy news media industry where you've got big players and small players and medium-sized players, and you've got routes for career progression through the industry, and you've got viable... Uh, you know, viable job prospects, and you've got innovation, and you've got diversity, all the sorts of things that you would expect to see in a healthy sector of the economy that I'm afraid we don't see at the moment in, in, in the news media. So, you know, I think the News Media Bargaining Code with some subtle but significant tweaks could be a step in the right direction, but I still feel like you're going to have those areas of the country, those communities that are going to need something additional and that's where we need to talk again about philanthropy and maybe even subsidy.
0: Right. From Australia to Scotland, will they be getting something similar to the Institute with this Scottish public interest journalism working group? I know that's something you're involved with. What's the idea there?
1: So, yeah, I was a member of the of the working group. It was a really good experience, actually. The Scottish Culture Secretary, Fiona Hislop, convened the working group um, just over a year ago now. And it was a really good cross-section of stakeholders. So you had people from, from well-established local newspaper businesses in Scotland. You had representatives of News UK, which also published Scottish editions of their titles. You had the Scottish Newspaper Society, Scottish NUJ. You also had some of the small independent players like the Ferret in Scotland, uh, Greater Govern Hill, which is a brilliant new indie title in Glasgow, and and people like me and the independent community news network. Um so it's so a very you know, whole range of stakeholders. I think we all approached the process a bit nervously, thinking, well, you know, their legacy, their indie, their progressive, their establishment, you know, there's going to be a lot of suspicion, their management, their their union. Actually, we really quickly found a lot of consensus. We all cared about the same things and we wanted to see some intelligent policy-making where you would direct some public funding into the sector but in such a way that there was zero political influence you know we all just completely agreed about that it just seemed completely obvious to us that's how it should be done so the vision that we came together on was of a Scottish public interest journalism institute a bit like what Cross imagined at at the UK level we're still waiting to hear the Scottish government's official response. But what we've said is that they should take the first steps. They should put some seed funding into this institute to allow it to get on its feet, to establish its sort of systems and, and get the team together. But that that institute should then have a role of actually raising funds from a variety of sources. Might include big corporates. Might include big tech might include trusts and foundations, might include individual donors, and maybe would include a bit of public funding as well in the mix, but it wouldn't be a primarily public body. It would be an independent charity that would stand apart from government, but government would give it that helping hand to get it on the road. Otherwise, the challenge is uh, just getting these things started. So that's the vision for the Scottish Public Interest Journalism Institute. We published the report in the autumn, and we understand that there should be a ministerial response to that soon. Um, and we, we, you know, we're waiting with with bated breath to see what that response is.
0: This institute doesn't need Westminster, though, uh, because Scotland's a devolved nation. It's not bound by the UK's decision on Cane Cross. It can do things like. Um, you know, we talked previously about the charity law, that's something they could enforce through this, That that's given them different options now.
1: Exactly. And so, so I mean, as you know, devolution is a is a complex topic and even members of the working group who are much more experienced in Scottish politics than I am, we were sometimes having to ask ourselves, is that is that devolved or is that reserved to Westminster? You know, so there are things that they can do from Holyrood and there are things they can't. So they, they can't, they can't, they can't, they can't... They can't um, do things with the tax system for instance so if we wanted to say and this is this is an idea which is kicking around that there should be tax incentives that's the canadian model where you create tax incentives to employ journalists and you get tax benefits if you are a journalist scotland can't do that 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 would have to be a UK thing
0: oh i mean ken cross introduced or recommended some tax reliefs in 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 her review so that's not something that could be taken forward through this institute
1: not 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 at that level no, right. that would have to be a uk that's reserved to the uk tax tax setting is, is is not devolved what they can do is they can work through the education system so you could you could you could you could introduce elements into the school's curriculum in scotland that made everyone have to take classes in journalism and becoming more media literate and understanding what it is to be a journalist and you can do public funding they can if they want to they can allocate some of their funds to supporting independent uh journalism in scotland so there are things they can and can't do and so some of the some of the recommendations that we made we were actually saying to the scottish government could you add your weight to calls on the uk government to do some of these things but there are other things where the scots can actually do things themselves and as you say one of those is charity charity law which is devolved
0: The publication of a new Manifesto for a People's Media by the Media Reform Coalition is also timely. Within these proposals for the future of print, digital and broadcast media is an interesting recommendation to provide support for community buyouts of local commercial newspapers which are under threat of closure. This week, it looks like British newspaper group NewsQuest has struck a deal to buy rival group Archant for somewhere between £5 to £10 million. Pounds. It's the latest example of a consolidation in the news industry and a step towards a commercial news monopoly. My question to Jonathan is, what effect does this have on independent news outlets in the area?
1: I think there's, I think there's two ways of looking at it, negative and positive. So the negative is that what's driving this particular takeover of Archant by NewsQuest is all the same economic challenges that we've been talking about. It's, it's the lack of a viable model. And that's, that's a challenge for every level of the industry. And actually, if it doesn't work for those really big players, then it's going to be even harder for the small players for all the reasons that we've been discussing. I think at the same time, I think the more positive outlook is to say it's an opportunity. I think if Newsquest are going to take on Archent, it seems to me that must be with the expectation that they'll be looking for efficiencies and to, you know, minimize duplication across the two businesses. That suggests that there's going to be some titles will be at risk. Certainly back office jobs will be at risk. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if journalists jobs are also at risk. So that's extremely sad for everybody employed by Archant, which is a long, you know, company with a long, distinguished history, particularly in in East Anglia, its historic base. But if I was an independent publisher in that region, I might also be thinking, okay, there's going to be some gaps opening up, and I've got the the, the know-how and the infrastructure to jump in and make something of that. So, you know, I think it's. Uh, I think in general, really, it's the worst of times and it's the best of times for the for the smaller independents. You know, they, they face all the same challenges. In some cases, they're greater challenges than they are for bigger players. But what they've got on their side is the fact that they're genuinely rooted in these communities. They really understand them. They're, they're, they're known on the ground. They, if you go around and talk to people in the sector or watch them at work, you'll see them out on the street talking to people who they know socially. And we know from other research we've done at PINF that actually that's massively important to people in terms of whether they trust media or not. We asked whether people are more likely to trust local media produced by a company that's based somewhere outside the area or based in the area. And the difference is really stark. I mean, a vast majority would not trust local news that's because it's been sort of parachuted into the area significant majority would trust what we would call homegrown
0: yeah and that's that's quite easy to understand why to be honest isn't it i mean it makes sense
1: it feels quite intuitive human behavior you know you trust people that you know you 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 trust people that you think have got your interests at heart because they're the same interests that they've
0: got but I think you know this this manifesto that's for a people's media that we've seen made an interesting recommendation to provide support for community buyouts of these local commercial newspapers. You know, independents in the, in the local area would struggle to buy um, Archon, even at the low asking price of five million to ten million pounds, given that it's got you know debt as well of around eight million pounds.
1: Yeah, no. So this is that's also a recommendation that was in the Scottish Working Group report. And there's a bit more of a tradition in Scotland of enabling community buyouts of, of, of things that are just that are defined in law as community assets. So one example is pubs or, or village shops. If there's, if there's something which has been in the community for a long time and people feel like it really is part of the sort of beating heart of what makes the place feel like a place, then there is a right, if that asset is at risk of closure for the community to, to take it on. As you say, you know a small community publisher isn't able to stump up 10 million pounds and take on all the liabilities of a of a 50 million pound turnover business but with the right policies and support in place what you might imagine is say say one of those newspapers that now goes from Arch into Newsquest's ownership if Newsquest is to say well we're going to close down this particular title in Ilford or wherever it might be if there was a mechanism that allowed the local community publishers to to bid for that at a reasonable price and if necessary maybe that's where subsidy comes in maybe that's where there's some public funding to make sure that the that the person selling the paper gets a reasonable price for it but in such a way that it's that it can actually stay alive in community hands rather than simply dying as it would otherwise so you need a few sort of levers to be pulled at the same time to make it work it's not good enough just to say Come along, small indie publisher with £40,000 turnover. Can't you find £10 million to buy this company? Yeah,
0: not realistic.
1: That's not realistic. But I think a model where it's like, okay, come on, small community publisher, you know what you're doing. You're trusted in this area. You 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 love it. You've been covering the patch. If you take on this title, it will stay alive and you can expand and grow and thrive. Then it looks like there's a really, you know, something to be
0: explored. We'll wait to see how that that one pans out. Then I guess um, I know that this is you know part of your you know next steps at Pintable is is kind of bringing publishers and communities closer together, right? And and closing the gap between them. Um, do you want to expand on that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose I feel like this for a long time now in the media, in and around the media. I think there have been two separate conversations. There's a bunch of people. Inside the industry, who are thinking about economics and about economic sustainability. How do we persuade people to pay for this thing called news? And then, largely outside the media, there's a lot of normal people saying, Why should we pay for this thing called news? We don't like it. We don't trust it. We don't feel it speaks to us, doesn't share our concerns. We have historically found a lot of it to be racist, discriminatory, or, you know, in more prosaic terms, boring, we're just not interested. And now you're coming along sort of telling us to, to donate or take out subscriptions or, or memberships. So the way the way we see it, there's, 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 there's the economic sustainability problem, but then alongside that, there's the social sustainability problem, which is this thing of communities not really having a lot of a sense of media is for us, it's on our side, it speaks to us. So our thinking is that actually those two problems are just two sides of the same coin and the solution to the economic problem must take into account the social challenges and and vice versa. So I think the kind of publishers that we're trying to support through PINF with with the the funding that we've been able to provide so far with leadership development, with the research that we're running, what they're all grappling with is is looking for that sort of sweet spot, that new model that isn't just a business model, it's a social model as well. So, you know, so the obvious route that many are exploring is around reader revenue. And it's, it's models where, you know, if you can encourage enough readers in your area to contribute, that gives them a sense of real ownership. You can complement that with actually, you know, going down the cooperative route, like the Bristol cable, where they're not just paying, but then they actually get genuine ownership, they get to set the editorial direction and appoint the directors and and so on. Or you can do it in a slightly softer way, where you just build in a lot more community consultations and and forums for debate. But to me, those two things just seem to fit beautifully together. The challenge is still going to be in those parts of the country where you're just not going to have enough readers with enough disposable income to put money in.
0: It feels like a very American approach, what you describe, um, because the number of times I've spoken to community outlets out in the States, it's striking just how deeply ingrained they are within their communities and how there is just no church and state relationship there at all, like the, the newspaper is part of that community and people are willing to contribute, philanthropists are willing to contribute because it's so synonymous with the area. I guess, is that what you see as, as the the next step for UK media?
1: Yeah, I think that's happening here. If you talk to, um, you know, publications like Shetland News up in Shetland or on the White, down on the Isle of Wight, they would recognise that description of, of, of US community publications they've they've put in the work to to really demonstrate that they are part of the community I think it does like you suggest I mean when you when you mention the sort of that classic church and state distinction or or you know people talk about journalism as the fourth estate as if it sort of stands slightly apart from the rest of life and sits in judgment I think we need to rethink a lot of those assumptions about how journalism works I think what's happening in the states is interesting in various respects there's There's the the amount of philanthropy that's coming in, and then that's helping to stimulate these reader revenue models. But there's also a big focus now on solutions journalism and the idea that journalism doesn't just castigate local authorities when they get things wrong. They highlight success as well.
0: And what I've also seen philanthropy doing in the States is actually pay for particular roles, like investigative roles. Particular teams to do particular beats, and and that serves a very particular function. It's not just keeping the doors open; it it literally does add to their coverage or add to their teams to keep them functioning.
1: Exactly. There's there's two two. I think there's two big things philanthropy is doing. There's that side of it where it's really you know really enhancing that outlet's ability to to cover a certain issue or beat, but there's also capacity building funding where they're actually funding the boring stuff they're funding the business development
0: yeah 100 percent,
1: with a view to over time the business development role you know generating enough sustainable revenue that the philanthropists start to start to
0: put finally then um the next thing for pimp is this uh you're you're doing the the next index of course
1: yeah so it's, it's a, yeah so yeah we want this to become an annual event we we want ideally to get more publishers to to complete the survey every year because the more data we get the more we can make of that. Last year, we heard from policymakers and philanthropists saying this is genuinely interesting, we didn't know this, really helping them to understand. We're using that when we're talking to, for example, the Competition and Markets Authority about this new news media bargaining code. There's still a big knowledge gap where, you know, people with the position and actually the will to do things that could really help the sector just don't know enough about it and I think still have a slightly outdated idea that we're talking about bloggers or sort of kitchen-sane copyists. And when they see, you no, know, okay, small but professional organisations pumping out public interest journalism, their eyes really open. So I think this year, if we can get you know get more than 56, start pushing up towards 100 responses, every extra response just gives us more valuable data and more impact.
0: Where can people find that survey?
1: So if they go to the publicinterestnews.org.uk website, they'll find it pumping out at them <laughs> so not not hard
0: yeah uh, go to go to the website and you'll be and it'll be right in your face as soon as you be
1: right in your face click click there you know it takes maybe 20 25 minutes to complete it's, it doesn't ask for complicated data it's things that any any small independent publisher will have at the top of their mind
0: yeah good 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 data is the key here to charting a path forward isn't it so listen Jonathan thank you so much for your time today it's been a real blast to, to speak to you thank you so much
1: Thanks, Jacob. It's been brilliant. Thanks for all your work you do as well.
0: Great to speak to Jonathan there. With so much on the horizon, we'll be sure to watch this space and keep the conversation going. My one thought for now is that news organisations cannot be passive and wait for initiatives and legislation to fall from the sky. The support is welcome and needed, but one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about is that many news organisations are finding success off their own back and you can be sure I'll be looking to include them in our coverage this year. If you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. And I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk, where you can also drop me an email if you'd like to feature on the show. But that's all we have time for. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.